Anderson Chan, thanks very much for coming to be in conversation. As Not we at say. all. Um, talking to you earlier, one of the things that, that came out, I don't think particularly in, intentionally, you indicated you're not an egalitarian in any way. <laughs> no, I said that uh, uh, in certain situations, uh, maybe a case could be made for egalitarianism. But clearly, uh, in Hong Kong society, we like to pride ourselves on the fact that we live in a very tolerant uh, society. Uh, we've always been known for our social mobility, although that probably is rapidly changing. And what um, we strive to achieve is to make this society more equal, make it fairer uh, and more just, so that everybody can participate in uh, the uh, upturn, uh, economic upturn, as equally we're expected to share in the downturn. There was a note of unhappy dubiety there about the strengths of your commitment to the idea that we, we share the goods and the bads and your sense of a future which doesn't quite promise that anymore. Um, Do you think Hong Kong's changed well, dramatically change, in that way? Very, very rapidly, particularly in the 17 years after the handover. Of course, any society changes, but what I see changing, and not for the better in Hong Kong, is um, a, a sense of hopelessness, particularly on the part of young people, uh, an increasing perception that uh, governance uh, is not creating uh, a sense of belonging, a sense of true harmony, that serious problems such as the income disparity are not being properly addressed. Uh, and above all, people are getting extremely frustrated that long after it's been promised, we still do not have universal suffrage and the right to elect our own chief executive and members of our legislature. Obviously, you were an extremely loyal and proper public servant. And you weren't out there uh, on the big 500,000 march um, you weren't out there in 1989 after Tiananmen because that wasn't your job. I think in those days I was a very, very junior officer mm -hmm. uh, and when you're in government there are certain things that you know are allowed and certain things are not allowed. Uh, and if you're ambitious you don't do the second for fear? No, I don't, I don't think I'm ambitious in that sense. Uh, I think as you get older and as you accumulate experience, you learn to um, distinguish between what is right, what is wrong, uh, what are certain things you should do irrespective of the uh, consequences. Those nearest and dearest to you, do you advise them, because this is, this is where family interests really come to play, do you advise them, Hong Kong is it, this is where you've got to put in your investment? and take the rough with the smooth, or are you, do you advise people in your family to hedge their bets? I never give advice to uh, people in those terms. Mm. I like to analyze for them what I think is good about Hong Kong, mm. why they should uh, regard Hong Kong as a good place to live and work in, at least until very recently. And so what do you say now? What do I say now is I think, yes, I uh, advise my children to give their children as many options as possible because given what I've seen happening in Hong Kong in recent years and particularly in the two years that CY has been imposed, uh, 
I'm really not very sure whether Hong Kong will remain the place that we all love. Could it ever have remained the same place? As soon as the joint declaration was signed and 1997 was on the horizon, with 2047 beyond that, surely we all knew that Hong Kong was, was going to have to change in, in all sorts of quite radical ways. I agree. It has to change in certain respects. Uh, the difficulty uh, is in having the wisdom to know what needs to be changed and what cannot change. Mm -hmm. And in my view, what cannot change is what underlines one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. It is the rule of law, our core values, and the rights and freedoms uh, that we've always enjoyed. These are, after all, our competitive strengths. If we give up on these strengths, then in my view, Hong Kong will increasingly be marginalized because in many other respects, there's no way we can compete with mainland China. We don't have the resources, we don't have the manpower, we don't have the land, we don't have the sheer mass. But what we do have is some very, very precious software. Real politic, then. Hong Kong, in that sense, it seems to me, could be said to have been whistling in the wind, as we say in English, because inevitably some people are going to be thinking Hong Kong was always Sanon County, Xinan, uh, a little nowhere place out in the boondocks outside big, bustling, important Guangzhou. And isn't that its destiny again? It doesn't have to be. After all, you have to ask why Deng Xiaoping crafted one country, two systems way back in the 1970s. He was a very smart cookie. Yes, I and think he, he had the vision uh, that the only way, not only to sustain Hong Kong's long-term prosperity and stability, but also to enable Hong Kong to make a very unique contribution to China itself. Do you think that's what he was thinking, or was he creating the space in which the adjustment could go on, whereby Hong Kong seamlessly joined itself to the motherland no matter what that cost, because by that time the motherland ah, would be... But if you did not, if you did not uh, enable Hong Kong to continue to uh, its lifestyle and its core values, then you simply don't have the space, do you? The hope always was, uh, maybe not so much on their side, but certainly on our side, was that the 50 years during which one country, two systems is supposed to last was uh, a period when we hope China itself will change. And will change so that over this 50-year period, the two systems may converge a bit closer. Mm -hmm. uh, and we clearly hoped that it would change in the direction of the Hong Kong system rather than the other way. Wasn't that a bit so, naive? No, I don't think it was naive. I, I think if everybody believed in one country, two systems and faithfully implemented it, I think that was achievable. Instead of which, what you're seeing is Hong Kong seems to have gone backwards. This is what people are very, very unhappy about. Wasn't that inevitable, that this process of convergence, which I'm sure we all believed in, was necessarily going to be the enormous juggernaut of a billion-plus people and this little pimple on its rear end uh, on the end of the Pearl River Delta? The small was going to give way more to the big, that some backwards movement was almost it, inevitable. No, I don't think it is inevitable because what you see happening is that these you know, changes have come about not in a natural way, 
but because in Hong Kong, we failed to defend two systems. Successive chief executives do not regard it as their main responsibility to defend two systems. We tolerate blatant interference, increasingly so, from the liaison office when it's not supposed to have any role to play in the internal administration of Hong Kong. We have a chief executive who seems bent on creating a polarized society rather than to try and bring different voices together to provide the, uh, the, the, the room for different voices to express themselves and for differences to be settled in the normal way in any democratic society. How much of this is, is pressure from Beijing, which I suspect perhaps doesn't happen. They have bigger worries on I their agree. hands. I agree and, with that. And how we, much often, from Hong we often lay on the plate of central government things that go wrong, things that are totally against two systems by saying, oh, you know, Beijing wants this, Beijing wants that. I suspect that frequently this is not so. It is because we have far too many people in Hong Kong who try and second guess what they think Beijing may or may not like. It is an open secret that sometimes when officials, Beijing officials in Hong Kong, when they write reports, it's not an honest account of what's happened or the reasons for something happening. They write with a view to who is reading the report and they will tailor their comments accordingly. Isn't that so, what every bureaucrat does? Absolutely not. <laughs> Certainly not this bureaucrat when I was in, in, Hong, in the Hong Kong government. But I think what has basically changed is the unity created by uh, uh, a recognition of a common set of core values, mm -hmm. uh, a tone of leadership, ethical leadership, set by the people at the very top, that you encourage your junior officers to tell you their honest beliefs. What, in the words of one political commentator is speaking truth unto power. But today, with the introduction of the political appointment system in 2002, fundamentally this system is flawed. Why? First, because when the chief executive lacks a political mandate to govern, it is in my view extremely difficult, very, very dangerous to concentrate the power to select the top dozen posts within the Hong Kong government in one single pair of hands because the power there is not checked. So as opposed to the old days when the civil service was a genuine meritocracy, in other words, you don't owe your appointment nor your promotion to political patronage, to having to play up to your boss. Uh, the, the, it was a genuine meritocracy because the, I know, the, I used those to of check. Us with a tougher mind might suspect that there were wheels within wheels. No, no. I, I chair, I, I cannot say never, mm. but I used to chair certainly the uh, promotion committee mm -hmm. for all administrative offices. Uh, and we made it our business to make sure that on this promotion uh, committee would sit uh, a number of different offices, different backgrounds, and collectively we would have uh, a very, very good knowledge of whoever is in the uh, Promotion zone. So I think we did an honest job of it. 
and I have never been aware and certainly never presided over any overt bias against any Do you think that's changed person. in the civil service just Absolutely. because of the political system? I think it has because, because the whole system now is not based on meritocracy, particularly not in the political appointment system. Well, of that you I can understand. some of the people who have been appointed, can you genuinely say that they are up to the job? But you seem to be saying that this is, this is infecting the, the way in which the civil service It is operates. infecting. It is infecting if you don't set the right tone, if mm. you don't try and build trust and cooperation between your political appointees and your civil servants, mm. if you do not have good role models at the very top, your style of leadership and the values that you subscribe to are bound sooner or later to affect those within the organization as a whole. So it seems to me that you're, you're, you're saying that somewhere at the selection of the top civil servants level, what's happening is, without anybody necessarily consciously believing it, uh, a Margaret Thatcher-like, is he one of us, is he not, rule is being applied. Somebody is going to support the CE or not? Well, the facts are, no, the facts are that permanent secretary occupied by usually administrative officers mm -hmm. used to be able to uh, aspire all the way to policy secretary. Right. But with the introduction of the appointment, political appointment system, you've suddenly truncated their career prospects by three levels. Because now uh, you have the uh, policy secretary, you have the undersecretary, and you have political aides. It isn't a parallel system where, where the perm sec is up there pretty much level with these political chaps. I mean, think no, about no, Britain, no, 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 no. The got... permanent secretary takes his instructions, presumably uh, uh, from both, certainly from the policy secretary, but sometimes also from. But the isn't that how political systems meant to work? That the politicians tell the civil uh, yes. servants what to do. Yes, you have a, you have a political system in a fully fledged democracy mm -hmm. where you have the leader who's elected by popular mandate. We have a chief executive here who's elected by 1,200 people. Right. Yes. And when executive power is not checked and you concentrate the power to appoint the top posts within the government structure in, the pe in one person. So we're talking just, about legitimacy. We are. A system well, that has not. The, the whole thing, not only about the political appointment system, but the whole thing about the ability to govern is about legitimacy. Absolutely. And you don't see that as being rescuable given how things are shaping at the moment? Well, I hope it's rescuable because we've been promised that we will have one man, one vote, universal suffrage to elect the chief executive in 2017. This is what the current debate and consultation is about. But everybody's, I mean, they're finessing that hugely. One man, one vote once we've chosen the candidate. Uh, yes, quite. One man, one vote means different things to different people. And do you think your proposals are, which are the middle ground proposals between, let's say, the radical Democrats who want public nomination of one sort or another, as opposed to your proposals, which are heading for middle ground, which you think Beijing will agree with? Did, have they got a chance of actually changing things? It's not just my proposal. I well, think that there is, a general, there is a general view within the community having waited some 20 years to see one man, one vote, the community really is looking to Beijing to deliver on its promise. And its promise is very simply, in 2017, with a broadly representative nominating committee, and the nominating process has to be a democratic process, we can at long last elect our own leader. That's how we read it. 
no, if no, you like. That is, no, that is, what, that is what the basic law says. Of course, now there are all sorts of attempts being made to rewrite the basic law. Or reinterpret, yes. maybe? Mm, no, to rewrite, I think. Broadly yes. representative, and, we've I got think, to have lots of fat cats. Uh, well, we don't want to fetch up with a system where you say to us, here are three uh, puppets, you elect from one of these. That is not to us genuine universal suffrage. It's not. I think that Beijing has not made, finally made up its mind, whatever pro-Beijing forces in Hong Kong may claim. I think they do care about Hong Kong people's views. They are going to listen, um, and they're going to then make a considered decision. What we must do in the meantime is to convince Beijing, first, that we want genuine universal suffrage. Second, that you have nothing to fear by allowing us to elect our own leader. This comes down surely just to Beijing somehow grasping, and I don't see how, given 4,000 years of political culture, this is a foregone conclusion, somehow grasping that loyal opposition is not unpatriotic. It's I agree, not... I agree. It is a how very... is that going to happen? Yeah, it is very difficult. What is going to happen is hopefully that there will be a, a sufficient number of people speaking up in Hong Kong, not just the grassroots people, but people in professions. But we've, we've recently seen, for example, some people in, in uh, working in the financial field, mm -hmm. hedge funds, fund managers and whatnot, taking out a full-page advertisement in mm -hmm. the Financial Times about how they too want to see genuine universal suffrage, you know, that this is the only way to uh, ensure we continue to enjoy our lifestyle, protect our rule of law and our rights and freedoms. So you're getting gradually more people speaking up because a lot of people are increasingly worried about what they see going on in Hong Kong in terms of chipping away at our core values. But for people who, who are in, in it for the money, if you like, who can just move their head office to Shanghai or Singapore or wherever it might be, and they are really, really, really big players... We need them to be signing up to this idea that, look, you can trust Hong Kong. No, it's I agree. I agree. I think if only we could persuade the business sector to be somewhat more vocal and speak up for, the, for what they believe in. These guys have no long-term interests. They have short-term interests. My next year's bonus, my, my next year's share price performance, this is what matters. These guys are, sh at very best, medium-term. Actually, they're mostly short-term. Well, I'm, see, I'm beginning to see a little change, maybe not amongst the bankers, mm. but certainly amongst people in the professions, particularly people in their 30s and 40s who have young children. They really are worried about what Hong Kong is going to be like five years down the road, ten years down the road. So what, what can they do? What can they do? Speak up, like, you know, like um, this group of uh, financiers, yes? Right. Yes. We need more people to and, speak up. And join and Occupy I think Central? We are. Uh, Occupy Central? <laughs> Occupy Central is, uh, as Benny has pointed out time and again, it's a last resort. Do we need another July 1st March when there are 500,000 people out on the street I to hope focus it won't, minds? I hope it won't come to that. But this I can say with certainty. If this time round, the SAR government and Beijing do not deliver on their promise, then I think you will, you will induce people to go in for mass mobilization.